asked, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. And then in chapter 6, after some further details of the harvesting of all the materials for the building of the temple, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the, the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built." And then moving on past the details of the construction to verses 37 and 38, we have a summary. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Moving into chapter 7, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite window in three tiers and the doorways and windows had square frames and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of thrones and made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment even the hall of judgment, it was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house, where he was to dwell, in the other court back of the hall, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. In all these details, God, we entrust ourselves to you. And we ask that you will speak to us. We are gathered today anticipating and ready to listen. We are yours. It is only in your light that we see light. And so send out your light and your truth and lead us 
to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we are continuing in our series in Kings, and we're following the rise and fall of King Solomon, the third king of Israel, the wisest and the wealthiest of all of that nation. And in this series, we've seen the conundrum of Solomon's character. On the one hand, in chapter 3, we learned that Solomon loved God and that he was committed to walking in the ways of the law of Moses. But yet we've also learned in chapter 11, looking ahead, that Solomon was compromised by his love for his wives and that it was the love for his wives that ended up turning his own heart where he was not true to God and ended up worshiping foreign gods at uh, unsanctified altars. And so several weeks ago, we looked at this disordering of Solomon's loves in which gifts given to him by God became more important than God himself. And so he loved his wives more than he loved God, and this led him to be unfaithful to God. It is this unfortunate turn in Solomon's life in which it's common for many who read this passage to divide Solomon's life into two eras, an early period of obedience and blessing and then a later period of disobedience and discipline. We've noted that that's a neat scheme, but it's perhaps overly simplistic. It is an oversimplification of the situation because, and precisely because it misunderstands the human predicament, the predicament that Solomon found himself in, the predicament that you and I find ourselves in as well. Because we too love God. We've been rescued by him, redeemed from our sins. We have experienced his great and prior love for us. And yet we also experience this profound weakness where we know what it is for our own loves to be disordered and to become jumbled and what it means to walk away from God for our loves to be confused. And so Solomon, like us, he is far more complex and complicated than two neat periods of his life. And so today our main task is to look closely at what happened to Solomon, what exactly unfolded for him in the disordering of his loves. And we want to look at that so that we can understand what this looks like and how it plays out in our own lives. Because remember, this history is given to us, not simply as a chronological record, but it is history designed to instruct us and to guide us and to lead us to God. And so we're going to look at three things this morning as we consider these three aspects of disordered love. First, we'll see that it involves a, a, it involves a self-justified disobedience. Secondly, we'll see that it involves confused priorities. And third, we'll see that it always involves self-deception. And so ahead of the Lord's table this morning, we'll look at those briefly. First, it involves self-justified disobedience. We've seen that the picture of Solomon that's painted for us is a man of tremendous virtue. He's a man who asked God for wisdom. He was willing to turn against his own interests, to seek wisdom from God in order that he could govern God's people well. He understood God's covenants, 
But next to all of that virtue, we've also seen that there was incredible vice and that that vice reaches all the way back into the beginnings of Solomon's reign. And so we never have a clean and neat picture of this third king of Israel. And we've seen that those compromises were deep. In chapter 3, we learn just out of the gate of Solomon's reign that he makes a political alliance with Pharaoh, and he takes Pharaoh's daughter to be his own wife. And what we learn very clearly is that Pharaoh's daughter does not become an Israelite. She does not accept Israel's God, but she rather continues to worship in her own traditions and serving her gods. As we've seen, the book of Kings must always be read with the book of Deuteronomy open. And in chapter 17, alliances and marriage alliances with foreign women are strictly forbidden to the Israelite king. And so, of course, it made sense. Egypt was the major superpower in the region at that time. And so for Solomon to sue for peace, to have peace on his southwestern border with Egypt... This made tremendous sense, and it was easy to justify. And a marriage alliance was the best way to secure the peace for him. But we also see that Solomon explicitly defies what the law of God says. And friends, this is what happens in the disordering of our loves, that it always involves this self-justified disobedience. That is a disobedience that makes sense to us, And a disobedience that perhaps everyone around us will say, yeah, you know, that's really a shrewd decision. It makes sense. It's practical. But what we see very clearly is it goes against the claim of God on Solomon's life, and it always goes against the claim of God on our lives. Now, further in 1 Kings 3, we also see that Solomon didn't destroy all the high places in verse 2. Israel was to cleanse the land of all the Canaanite high places, and they were to build one central shrine. Solomon is in the process of building that central shrine, a mountain in which God would be worshipped on. But ahead of that, all the other shrines were to be removed because there was a danger that Israel would return to worship the foreign gods who had formerly been worshipped at those shrines. But Solomon failed to remove that. And of course, then Israel was led in chapter 11 by Solomon's actions into idolatrous practices. And so Solomon was compromised here as well. It, of course, was easy to justify. He could think to himself, well, they're worshiping the true God. They're doing so in the wrong place, but it's really okay. They're not going to be led into idolatrous practices. Once again, self-justified disobedience. And then last week we saw in chapter 4, in the record of Solomon's great accomplishments, there was critical commentary inserted. And it can feel rather subtle, but yet what we find in verse 26 there is that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, and he had 12,000 horsemen. And once again, we find Solomon disobedient to God's claim upon his life. From Deuteronomy 17, once again, that the king of Israel was not to multiply horses, that he was not to find his strength in a great army, that he was not to build up his chariots because he would depend upon these things. And yet Solomon had. He had multiplied horses and chariots, and he had gone against the claim of God. 
And friends, an aspect of disordered love always involves this self-justified disobedience. That is, when it's perhaps prudent to us, when it seems wise, and even the counselors around us will not gainsay what we think, people will even say, yeah, that seems completely sensible, but in which we are clearly and explicitly going against which God commands us. And the question for every one of us, and what we learn from Solomon is that we all must constantly ask this question of ourselves. Where are the areas in which we have justified our disobedience? In which it seems prudent, in which it seems wise, in which it seems very reasonable. And we're willing to go that direction and in that way without really giving it a great deal of thought. But it is the self-justified disobedience that leads Solomon down the wrong path. The second thing that we see about this disordered love, though, is also involves a confused set of priorities. Chapters 5 through 7 does involve the construction report. Many measurements, cubits and windows and all kinds of details that you can absolutely get lost in. But it's important to step back from all of that detail. While there are things to learn in it, there is a broader message that's being plainly laid out for us. Chapter 5 details Solomon's preparations for the temple. He elaborately prepares by uh, signing a contract with the king of Tyre. And then in chapter 6, the construction commences. It begins with the description of the external structure of the temple in verses 1 through 13. And then in the latter half of the chapter, from verses 14 through 35, you find about the interior arrangements. But then you find the key taking place in verses 36 through 38. And return there with me one more time. In verse 38, in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He, referring to Solomon, was seven years in building it. And then we find an interruption taking place. Because Solomon actually wasn't quite done with all the arrangements of the temple. Actually, if you look in chapter 7 in verse 13, you'll find that the narrative resumes around Solomon's final touches on the temple. But inserted inside of this construction report is an interlude. It is an interruption, and you need to hear it as that. We've just learned that Solomon was seven years in building the temple. And then look what it says. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he had finished his entire house. He didn't leave anything undone. And friends, this is the condemnation of Solomon in his priorities. You see, there's something very subtle being said here about Solomon. That yes, he constructed a house for God's name, and he gave seven years to it. But he was interrupted, and there were delays in that construction. Why? Because he was building a house for his own name as well. A house that he had no command from God to build, and yet he had a command from God to build the house of the Lord. The temple where God would dwell with his people, where sacrifices would mediate their relationship with him, all being a forerunner of our Lord Jesus. 
But Solomon spent almost double the time on his own palace. And he delayed finally finishing the temple because of his preoccupation with his own house and the house that he built for his wife, uh, the, the daughter of Pharaoh. And so we find here a picture of Solomon's priorities that is far more complicated. Solomon was far more captivated with his own palace than he was with God's house. And friends, this is a picture of disordered love, is that our priorities get out of whack and certain things become more important to us in this life than the priorities that God assigns to us. And we have to ask the practical question, why does this happen to us? How exactly does it play out this way? We're told very explicitly in verse 8 in chapter 7, where it, it explains to us that Solomon's own house, where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall, was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. Why was he so delayed in finishing the temple? Why was he distracted from that project? Why did he spend double time? It's that Solomon's heart had been captured by another affection. It was not an affection that God necessarily forbid. Solomon was allowed a wife. But he had, of course, taken a wife disobediently. He had taken Pharaoh's daughter. He had taken Pharaoh's daughter into his house. She was an idolatrous woman. And he then constructed a house for her. We're told in chapter 11 that Solomon loved his wives. And it's the final statement of his compromise. And this is what happens to us. That our priorities get confused because we love other things immoderately. We love them next to God and then we begin to love them above God. And this is what leads us into disobedience. It's what leads us to then be working against God. Despite all of our professed affections for him, despite all of our past loyalties, these things begin to be justified. And we have a confusion in what it is that we really love. But the third thing that's involved in this disorder is that there is also always self-deception. If you look back in chapter 5 where Solomon is sending a letter to the king of Tyre, Hiram, and he was requesting that Hiram join him in this quest to build a house. And Hiram, who was a friend of David, was eager to join with Solomon. But in verse 5, we find this report. Solomon boasts and says, So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. It is interesting, and it's also quite intentional, that Solomon nowhere mentions the house that he was going to build for his own name in this report to Hiram. But rather what Solomon does is he advertises his faithfulness to his father. He advertises his intent to build the temple of God, to build the house of God. And he there cloaks all of his ambition, and he cloaks all of his real plans and what this reveals is Solomon's own self-deception. Despite all of his wisdom, 
despite all the things that he was able to see through, despite all of his knowledge, this man, great in everyone's eyes in all the earth, was self-deceived. And friends, this calls us all to have a special eye of awareness that we are not beyond this. Jeremiah says it, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And because of all of our capacities to self-justify, because of all of our mixed priorities, we can be subjects of self-deception in which we are actually disobedient and we can boast and play a much better game in public but shelter something that is displeasing to God. And this is what it looks like for loves to get disordered. This is how it plays out. It plays out in self-justified disobedience. It plays out in confused priorities. It plays out in self-deception. It can be incredibly subtle. But friends, it's incredibly important that we ask God for wisdom to know ourselves that we rend ourselves to God, that we ask him to search us, that we ask him to know us, that we allow him to reveal those areas of disobedience, that we allow him to reveal what our heart really prioritizes, that we allow him to break through our self-deception, that we become supple in his hands. And friends, this is where Augustine helps us. In his great book, his autobiography in the Confessions, in the early part of his Christian life as he had just converted, Augustine was assessing the disordering of his own loves and affections and how fickle his own heart was and how that fickleness could lead him to love other things above God. And he recognizes that God created the world and gave many good gifts to be enjoyed. And he celebrates those gifts. He doesn't denigrate them. Wives and great meals and beautiful settings that God gave us all these things inside the creation and Solomon was right to enjoy them. But yet Augustine says, all these things are the gifts of my God. I did not give them to myself. He recognizes they come from God. These things are good, he says, and they all made up my being. They were part of my life. They've been given by God to direct me to him. Therefore, he who made me is good, and he is my good. And then he turns and he says, but in this was my sin, that not in him, but in his creatures, in myself and others, did I seek pleasure, honors, and truth. So it was that I rushed into sorrow, conflict, and error. It's the disordering of love. It is when the gifts of God, the things that he gives us to enjoy, become more important than God himself, that they become our captivity and focus. And rather than those gifts delivering us to God and the enjoyment of them and recognizing that they come from him and are always given as signs to direct us to him, they become a thing unto themselves. And Augustine says we're led into sorrow, into conflict and error because all we find in those created gifts when they're divorced from God is emptiness. It's cotton candy. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't lead us to a fount in which we can kneel and drink and find life. But it is in that condition of disordered love where our hearts can grow hard 
And we can be self-deceived like Solomon. We can justify that disobedience. And we can live with our confused priorities, saying that we're doing good, saying that we're doing something at least, comparing ourselves to others, believing ourselves better than others. But this is not what God asks. He doesn't ask you to compare. He doesn't ask you to justify. He definitely doesn't want us to be self-deceived. But friends, because of his great love for us, he wants to purge all of that disorder. And that we want to be very careful in the course of our lives, recognizing the great capacity. If this could happen to the wisest man on earth, do you think you get a pass? No. None of us does. We don't have this type of wisdom in us. The wisdom to assess the heart can only come from God. It's the work of his spirit. And so let's ask him for that help this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we read of Solomon's life and the tragedy, the disordering of his loves and how he was taken away, we feel our own weakness. We know that we limp with loves that we shelter in our hearts and that our affections get disordered as well, that we self-justify these things, that we have very complicated motivations and priorities that we too can be self-deceived. And so we call upon you today and we ask that you would reveal these things to us. Help us in our weakness, God. Minister to us and draw us into the truth and may we see ourselves as you see us. And yet in doing so, may we not despair knowing that we're covered with the righteousness of Jesus and that we are free to examine our hearts because you have declared us in Jesus to be right and forgiven. And so as those who have been loved by you, continue to purge us and sanctify us, not so that we earn or gain, but rather that we live as beloved sons and daughters who know that we have every bit of your good pleasure because of your son's work on our behalf. Work in us, give us this wisdom, God. We thank you this morning for the gift it is to come to you in prayer, to bring our concerns and our petitions, to lay all of our thoughts, all the thoughts of our hearts before you. You have instructed us and commanded us to pray, and yet we don't know how to pray as we ought. So hear us as we come in and through your son, Jesus. This morning we do pray for your work amongst all the nations of the, of the earth. It is your promise to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And so we send out missionaries, those who go to all the ends of the earth to preach the gospel, to see men and women reconciled to you, to see life renewed and restored for the forgiveness of sins, for the new life of your spirit. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters whom you have partnered with us as a church we remember Kevin Bigelow and Christ Church Beaches and their efforts to establish a gospel-centered community at Jacksonville Beach. And we ask God that you would build up this church and provide all of their needs. We also pray for Juan Jose Coto, Iglesia Communion in Puerto Rico, 
And God, we ask that you would establish this work. There be a vibrant gospel center in Caguas, that Juan Jose will preach with passion and great love for you, and that men and women will know the gospel of Jesus that frees them from their sins and takes them into this journey of reordering our disordered loves. Bless this work. Be with our own members in Puerto Rico this week as John Lawler, our associate pastor, leads them this team and the work they do, the ministries of mercy and the building of our partnership with Juan Jose. Bless them, give them safety and bring them home next weekend. Father, we also are mindful this morning of those who are sick and suffering in our congregation. We remember them, God, and we ask that you have mercy on them. We pray for Steve Beaver. We pray for Barb Day. We pray for Louis Fosnick. We pray for Sue Forsyth. We pray for Elizabeth Garnett. We pray for Gar Garganius, for, for Hector and Viona Harima, for Wayne Noble, and for Sandy Reynolds. We ask God that you draw near and give comfort to each of these saints. Give them faith to entrust themselves to you in all of their trials. Give them every comfort from your word. Renew and restore and heal them as it is your good pleasure. Father, we're also mindful this week of your promise that the nations will rage, that the rulers will plot in vain, that there will be war and rumors of war. And so we do pray for all of our elected officials and we ask God that you give them incredible wisdom. They will know how to do righteousness, that they will walk in justice and they will promote and encourage peace. And so bless our president, Joe Biden. Bless both houses of Congress. Bless the judiciary of the Supreme Court. Also for on the local level, our city council and mayor, on the state level, our governor and the House of Legislature. God, we ask that you would endow these men and women with wisdom and a heart to pursue what is good and right and pleasing to you. We do thank you for the gift of children, that you have filled our church with them. And God, we ask, we continue to offer them to you. You have instructed us to disciple them, to teach them in all the ways of Jesus, and we ask that your spirit will come and work in them that they will never remember days apart from Jesus and that they'll never depart from his house, that they will delight in it, knowing him all their days, that you will raise up a faithful and new generation, establish them strong, and they will love you and serve you and teach Jesus to their children and their children's children. Bless each of the little ones in this church. We thank you, God, for the, for the opportunity to present our prayers to you. Your promise is to hear us in your son, Jesus Christ, when we come to you according to your will. And so hear us as we pray according to how he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, 
and the power and the glory forever and ever. 